Good morning. My own text. Now I'm on. Good morning. Let's, um, we've got to get Paul to Jerusalem, and we're going to get Paul to Jerusalem today. So that means you need Acts, <clears throat> Acts chapter 21. We finished Acts chapter 20 last week. So uh, today we're going to at least get him geographically to um, Jerusalem. And then next week we... It really gets fascinating after he goes to Jerusalem um, for several reasons. And we'll see that really next week. But we will get him to Jerusalem today. Um, if you recall, he, he, we, we, we left him at Miletus last week. Miletus is um, not far from Ephesus. He was at Miletus. He invited the elders, the church leadership from Ephesus to come to Miletus, and he uh, delivered a powerful sermon to the Christians there, the Christian leaders at Miletus, and then there was a very tearful goodbye, um, and that's where we, we left Paul at, is after the tearful goodbye that occurs at the end of chapter 20. Just look back for a second at verse 36 of chapter 20, just to remind you after the really important sermon he delivered, uh, it concluded with these words, and when he, Paul, had said these things, he knelt down, prayed with them, and there was much weeping on the part of, of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So we, we left them there last week. They're on, they're on the way to the ship. So look at verse 1, chapter 21. Remember in the original manuscripts, these numbers were not there. Uh, they were put in much, much later for our benefit. So you just need to keep reading. And when we had parted, the Greek word there for parted is amazing. It literally is, and when we tore ourselves away from them. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos. Um, I'll try to do this geography quickly, uh, but it's interesting what's going on. Again, you're on the west coast, and I'm sure you got Bible maps in the back of your Bible. You probably have a Bible map that shows you the journeys of Paul. We're, we're at the end of the third missionary journey. He's on the west coast of uh, what we call Turkey, the Romans called Asia or Asia Minor. So he leaves and he's heading south because he's going to Jerusalem. And he's hugging the coast for a little while. So um, he came by straight course to Kos. Uh, that's about a one-day journey. Uh, and the next day to Rhodes. That's about a one-day journey. By the way, Rhodes is a, an amazing place. Some of you have been to Rhodes. Some of you have been to Rhodes with me. It's a beautiful Mediterranean island. Rhodes, though, is where you had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you remember that, the Colossus of Rhodes, that hundred-foot-tall statue of the god Helios, the sun god, um, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It sort of looked over the harbor at Rhodes. When you go there today, uh, you see the pedestals upon which the peds, or the feet, stood of the Colossus of Rhodes. Um, what's interesting to me, even when Paul went there, it was an old statue and had already fallen down and was laying prostrate in Paul's day. And uh, it just vanished after a while. Anyway, that's Rhodes. You may remember Rhodes from your high school history, I hope. And from there to Patara. Uh, now, you may have a little textual note beside the word Patara. In the ESV, there's a number one right there. And if you look at the bottom of the page, it says some manuscripts. There is another not as old manuscript as what's used for the ESV. But there is another old manuscript of Acts that adds the words after Tupatara and Myra. The reason I say that, um, do you know which saint? And It will thrill me if you do know, but I don't expect you to know. Do, do you know which saint is connected with Myra? Thank you. You ought to have a Roman Catholic in the room. St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas of Myra. And I've been on a journey for 38 years trying to rehabilitate St. Nicholas. Banish Santa Claus and 
bring back St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was a great Christian saint. You know, he's got a pointed hat. Now, in Santa Claus, thanks to Coca-Cola and the 19th century, it's a red pointed cap and it's fallen over. That's a bishop's mitre is what he's wearing. Uh, but he's, he was a bishop, St. Nicholas of Myra. And uh, he, he was reputed to be very loving, loving children. Uh, St. Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea to help develop our basic creed, the, the Council, the, the Nicene Creed. Anyway, Myra. These are places that the people who first read the book of Acts would know these places. But what I think is important for you is he's hugging the coast. He's, cause he's hugging the coast. He's, trying, he's on his way southeast to Jerusalem. He's hugging the coast. Verse 2. And having found, we're at Patara, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia. So this is a ship, a bigger vessel. Paul's going to later be on a ship going from the Holy Land to Rome, and that ship held like 276 people. So he's been in a sort of small vessel hugging the coast, <clears throat> but he decides at this point in Patara to get aboard a big ship and to make a, a straight shot across the Mediterranean. Um, do you remember why our friend Paul is in a hurry and he has a deadline? Pentecost. He's trying to get there for Pentecost. So he's tired of wasting time. So he gets aboard a big ship of Phoenicia. I went aboard and we set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus... They, they sailed past Cyprus, but again, you can look on your map. They're, they're kind of going straight now, and they're going kind of through the Mediterranean Sea. Um, they, they, go, they pass Cyprus, leaving uh, they pass Cyprus, leaving it on the left. We, set, we sailed to Syria, um, and again, just like Turkey was Asia, the province of Asia for Rome, all of what we kind of call most of what we call the Holy Land was the province of Syria for the Romans. So when it says he went to Syria... Um, it includes what we know Syria to be today, <clears throat> but it also includes what we would call Lebanon or Israel today. So anyway, they, they sailed to Syria, <clears throat> excuse me, and they landed at Tyre. Tyre is a coastal city. Uh, Lebanon, what we would call Lebanon, but it's the province of Tyre to the Romans. They landed at Tyre, for there, was a sh there the ship was to unload its cargo. Uh, Luke is such a meticulous historian. Uh, there have been books written about how much we learn about the nautical world and sailing the Mediterranean Sea from from the book of Acts. Because uh, what would happen is they, they would land at Tyre, and they would unload the ship and load the ship. That was one of the few ports uh, on the coast of what we'd call Lebanon and Israel. Uh, they, 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 sta they stayed there. Um, Verse 4, while well, this is loaded, unloading, and having sought out the disciples, he had to hunt them. He had to look for them. We stayed there for seven days. Um, another guess, because you're getting real familiar with this stuff now. Why, was, why did he have to seek out disciples? That tells us probably in the city of Tyre, which is a fairly major city, there was not a What? Synagogue, you got it. See how much you pick up. He would always go to the synagogue. He would find Jews there. He would find Christ followers there because they were Jews. Um, he would find Gentiles who were already connected to Judaism. That's why throughout Acts, if at all possible, he goes first to the synagogue. Um, evidently, no synagogue entire. He has to look for uh, disciples or would be disciples. But he's looking for disciples, uh, and he said, "We stayed there for seven days." Now watch this. Here's what you need to follow away in the back of your mind about this section. If you were just at home reading it and you were looking at it closely, you would get, make, you would get mixed messages as to whether or not the Holy Spirit wants Paul to go to Jerusalem. And as a result from this text, uh, we've had conversation for 2,000 years was the Holy Spirit going to tell him Paul to go to Jerusalem and he, he, he was obedient to the Holy Spirit? Or was the Holy Spirit telling him not to go to Jerusalem and he was just being headstrong and winning against the will of the Holy Spirit? Well, I'll kind of answer that or give you my take on that. But if you just look at this text, it's ambiguous what the Spirit is saying, such as the next passage. And through the Spirit, 
they, these disciples he found in Tyre, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, just for the sake of that whole issue, is he following the Spirit here? Is he not following the Spirit here? Um, Here's my simple take on it. He's following the Spirit. He knows the Spirit wants him to go to Jerusalem. He knows what's happening. Because there's places that is obvious. And by the way, when you interpret Scripture, you know, people say, well, everybody can interpret it the way they want to. Well, no, they can't. Um, we, we've talked, we've had this book for a really long time. We had, there's certain practical points that you need to keep in mind when you interpret Scripture. Here's one of them. Let the more clear passages interpret the less clear. If it's clear elsewhere, he was being obedient to the Spirit by going to Jerusalem. If that's clear elsewhere, and you look at this where it says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to, the, to Jerusalem. Maybe interpret that in light of the very clear text and then look at that text and say, okay, maybe, because it almost sounds like the Spirit is telling these disciples to tell Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. We really can't interpret it that way because it's so obvious elsewhere the Spirit's telling Paul to go to Jerusalem. So we read that, and the way we think we read that um, is the Spirit told the disciples what was going to happen to Paul. The Spirit was in communication with the disciples. And when the Spirit told the disciples what the Spirit has been telling Paul, that, yeah, he's going to get arrested and perhaps killed in Jerusalem. The disciples were, they, they knew that from the Spirit. That it was not, it didn't, they didn't feel right about him, Paul, going to Jerusalem. They, they had a deep sense that it was not going to end well, and they knew that from the Spirit. But then they were going to, their love for Paul outweighed their obedience to the Spirit. So they sort of learned from the Spirit that this is not going to end well for Paul. And again, it's going to get clearer as we go on in chapter 20. So they learn that from the Spirit, and they try to talk Paul out of going. Let, let me offer you a psychological, pastoral premise that we have a hard time with as human beings. Because again, it's obvious. The Spirit is saying, go to Jerusalem. The Spirit's also saying, and Agabus in a few minutes is going to show him, go to Jerusalem, and you're going to it's going to be bad when you go. But the Spirit is saying to give Jerusalem. Just like the Spirit, after the baptism of Jesus, sent him into the wilderness to meet the enemy. You know, as human beings, we do, sometimes we like to step into people's lives and prevent their suffering. Particularly our children. Sometimes as human beings, we like to step into people's lives and, and cure their stupidity that brings about some of their suffering. That, that does come out of love. I try to always be mindful, and this is easier for me to do with you than my kids. I try it with my kids to tell myself, if I prevent, if I step in and prevent some hardship in their life, I might be thwarting the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit might... God does want us to struggle sometimes. God does want us to hurt sometimes. The Spirit will never harm us, but God does want to hurt us in, in, in His process of sanctifying us. The Spirit will send us into hard places. The Spirit, being obedient to God, will, t will, will, will cause some obedience that will make me hurt. So when I try to step in and make everybody comfortable around me, I, and I do it, particularly for my kids, I try not to, now that they're adults, I try not to save them. You know, they told us in seminary, there's one Messiah per universe, and it ain't you. <laughs> well, I like to be the Messiah, for, particularly my children. I want to step in and take away their suffering. And, you know, sometimes I try to be attentive enough to the Word of God and to the Spirit and to Christian tradition to say, well, maybe this is God's will for them. Maybe... Maybe they need some money because God's trying to teach them how to manage it. And if I show up with a check, I might be circumventing the work of the Spirit. These were people who loved Paul. And the Spirit had said to them, it's not going to end well for him in Jerusalem. 
because that's what we keep hearing elsewhere. So the Spirit said that to them. So they just took, they, they were interpreting the Spirit to mean, Paul, don't go there. Well, Paul's going to confront that issue. But just as you deal with other human beings, um, just be sensitive that sometimes we don't want to thwart or circumvent what God's doing in their life. And that's, that, that, that means we've got to grow in grace. We've got to grow in our relationship with God. We've got to know the Word of God. We've got to, we've got to know the mind of Christ, which Paul says we can have the mind of Christ as Christians. Because that's, that's a hard call. That's a hard call. But sometimes we want to step in and save everybody around us in so many different ways. And, it's not, and that, the impulse may be love. But sometimes love does for the other person what the other person needs, not what the other person wants. So I think these are very kind people who were saying to Paul, it's not going to end well for you in Jerusalem, don't go. I'm glad Paul, you know how Paul's going to answer this. Paul's going to say, you know, I'm going to paraphrase, thank you for your concern, but I feel a strong leading from the Spirit. You know, he's been taking up the offering. He's trying to, he's going to take it back to Jerusalem. He is, he is compelled, he said last week. He is compelled to go to Jerusalem. So these people are just being kind. I understand their kindness. Through the Spirit, and what they'd heard in the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So, um, we, you know, we need to be, God doesn't want us to be, God does not want us to be nice as much as God wants us to be good. Sometimes our niceness, even to people we love, might be hurting them spiritually. So don't be too quick to um, just determine anything bad in someone else's life or hard or challenging in someone else's life is something we need to cure for them. Um, again, there's one Messiah per universe, and it ain't you. Um, I do have a stronger tendency as a parent to be that. I, I love being Messiah to my kids. Um, I try hard. That's why I don't give advice to my adult children unless they ask. You know, I, I just don't. Um, they usually know what I think about everything anyway. But um, I don't give advice to my adult children unless I ask. Because I'm not going to be, I'm not their Messiah. What I, what I used, over the years I've done a lot with clergy development. And I can't tell you the number of times, particularly for clergy, in their development, in their ministry, I finally had to look at them and say, I can't be your Holy Spirit. I really can't. You know, that's between you and God. You know, I can't tell you whether or not you need to serve in North Carolina or Zimbabwe. You know, I can help you maybe discern that, but I can't be your Holy Spirit. But sometimes we so love the people around us, we want to be the Holy Spirit for them. And that's okay if it really, if we're siding with the Holy Spirit and not just not just allowing it to come out of yeah I'll even say allowing it to come out of a misguided love a sincere a deep a passionate love but love can be misguided so I'm glad Paul didn't say to these very nice loving people in Tyre oh yeah you're right it's not going to end well for me the spirit saying that it's going to be tough it's going to be a challenge it's a hard road so I'm just going to stay here in Tyre I'm glad that I know, I, knew, I know Paul wasn't those. They weren't going to talk him out of it, but they tried. Look at verse 5. When our days there were ended, we departed. Uh, sometimes, it was Max Lucado one time who said, sometimes faith begins when you put cotton in your ears. You know, I don't know about you, but I've had to learn over the years how to listen, how to how to hear everybody but not listen to everybody. Does that make sense to you? Sometimes you have to put cotton in your ears. That's what Paul did here. They're pleading with him. Don't go. It's not going to end well for you, Paul. The Spirit told us it's not going to end well for you. You stay here. Well, Paul knew that sometimes you just have to not listen. And he departed. He headed out. Um, they went out on our journey, and they all... And watch this, here it happens again, because they're saying, don't go. Here he goes. We departed, went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And there it is again, kneeling down. So you're kind of picking up our primary posture for prayer in the Christian community is kneeling. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. 
and said farewell to one another. I'm sure there were tears because, again, they, they knew this process not going to end well for Paul going to Jerusalem. And we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So he's, he's now he's on the coast of the Holy Land. Uh, Tyre is up like where um, Lebanon is today. So verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at uh, Ptolemaeus. Um, the other name for Ptolemaeus is Akko or Acre, and that's still on the coast uh, of, um, of, of Israel. So they, they arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for one day, probably the, the, the ship is reloading or unloading, stayed with one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. Um, if you've been to the Holy Land, uh, I hope you've been to Caesarea Maritima. It's, um, it, it's one of the most beautiful sites. It's on the, on the Mediterranean. It's gorgeous. It was, it was almost like a mini Rome that was built there. It was built by Herod the Great, that, that puppet ruler of um, the Holy Land under the Romans. Herod the Great was called the Great simply because he was a great builder. He was a horrible human being and ruler, but he was a great builder. He built a lot of things throughout uh, the Holy Land. You see many of them now when you go. But that whole city of Caesarea Maritima, and we call it Maritima, which means on the, on the ocean, on the coast, because Caesarea Philippi is up north. That's, that's where Yes, that's where Peter said, you are the Christ of the living God. Peter's confession. This Caesarea Maritima is gorgeous, it's beautiful. That's, that's where, that was the seat of Roman occupation um, for the Holy Land. Uh, Jerusalem wasn't. They just went to Jerusalem and they absolutely had to. You know, the Pontius Pilate and his Roman legions would go there to keep peace in festivals like Passover. They, they weren't dumb. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem and go to Caesarea Maritima, You'll know why they won't live at Caesarea Maritima. It was like a little Rome. It's on the coast. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. You know, even in, even in uh, the palace there that Herod would have been in year-round when he wanted to be as one of his palaces. He could be there year-round. Um, not in wintertime. He wouldn't want to be. You know, he's on the Mediterranean Sea, but he has his swimming pool also. You see, there's an amphitheater there. You see the ruins of all that. That's where whenever we go to the Holy Land, um, that's the only place, if you go with me, uh, that you can get to touch the Mediterranean Sea. And I've had people who could do everything from touch the Mediterranean Sea to fall into the Mediterranean Sea. But that's their chance to touch the Mediterranean Sea. Caesarea Maritima is beautiful. So, and that's why Caesarea Maritima is important. Paul ends up getting in prison there for two years. Uh, it has crucial Christian history. Some of the early church fathers were there. One of the greatest early Christian libraries ends up in Caesarea. It's a beautiful town, beautiful city. Um, even to this day, Benjamin Netanyahu has his summer home there for when he wants to get out of Jerusalem. It's a gorgeous place on the Mediterranean. That's where the Romans stayed. That's, that was the primary city. And that's why it, we've already been to Caesarea before. That's where Cornelius was um, converted. So you've seen Caesarea. So I'm trying to say you need to know Caesarea almost as closely as you know Jerusalem. You know, when we go to Caesarea today, you, we know where the ruins of the prison is because the ruins are there. We go and remember Paul's imprisonments uh, in Caesarea because that, that was the headquarters for the Romans, a great place to visit. Anyway, so they go to Caesarea because that, that is the main port in, in the first century. When Herod built Caesarea, he created a harbor. He had to build a boundary and created a harbor, and he wanted to create a harbor for um, um, he was a puppet ruler for the Romans. He was always trying to impress the Romans. So he created a beautiful harbor that looked like a little Rome. And of course, what did he call it? Caesarea, named in honor of who? Caesar. That's, that was Herod's style. It was an amazing place. Uh, anyways, that's the best harbor. That's the best harbor closest to Jerusalem. It's about 65 miles from Jerusalem. So they port there. Um, and this is really interesting. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Okay, check your memory for a minute. Where do we leave Philip the Evangelist at? Philip the Evangelist. This is not the Philip as in one of the twelve. This is Philip the Evangelist. This is the only person in the New Testament called the Evangelist. This is Philip the Evangelist. Where you met him, uh, in case you don't recall, was Acts chapter 6. 
He was one of the seven deacons chosen in Acts chapter 6. So evidently, after he was chosen in Acts chapter 6, he uh, became famous as an evangelist. And in the book of Acts, they're scattered from Jerusalem. Evidently, he ended up living in Caesarea. We are about 20 years out from Acts chapter 6. Now, if you remember Acts chapter 6, this is fascinating. Luke assumes you remember this, I think. Acts chapter 6, the first deacons are chosen to help take care of the widows and help with food distribution. One of those seven deacons, Philip is a famous one. The one, the most famous one, who ends up getting martyred, is which deacon? Stephen. Okay, follow me here. Here, Philip is one of the seven. One of those seven, Stephen, gets killed, martyred by an angry, wild mob. And who was there when Stephen was killed, consenting to it? Paul was there. Paul was there. I bet this was an interesting meeting. Last time, as far as we can tell probably, last time Philip saw this man, he was participating in the killing of Stephen. There may be a reason why Paul goes to Philip the evangelist. Again, context is important. You know, there may be a good reason. I like to think there is. Paul's going to talk to Philip, kind of reconcile with Philip. Uh, he goes to Philip the evangelist's house. You're going to see in a moment there's another reason why he goes there. He goes to Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, Acts chapter 6, and stayed with him. Verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Um, before I talk about the, uh, sometimes they're translated virgins. He had four virgin daughters, four unmarried daughters. Before I say anything about them, because they're not really that significant, but what they do is significant. These are four daughters of Philip the Evangelist, who do what? Prophesy. Okay, so the inquiring mind should then say, what is prophesying in the New Testament? Prophesying in the New Testament and Old Testament. Now, let me back up. When we think about prophesying, we think about Jeannie Dixon, predicting, predicting the future. Now, you're going to see in a moment, prophets can do some of that. Prophets can do some predicting of the future. But usually when they predict the future, they're doing it because prophecy first and foremost throughout the Bible is authoritatively speaking the mind of God. That's why the Old Testament prophets, for instance, let's think of Jer Jeremiah. Jeremiah, long book, Jeremiah. Jeremiah saying to Jerusalem, you need to repent. You need to return to God. You need to get your act together. You're doing horrible things. He lists the horrible things the people in Jerusalem are doing. And he usually ends up always by saying, if you don't repent and change, you're going to be destroyed. So was he, was he predicting the future? Yeah, he sure was. And he was right. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. And most of them carried off into captivity, including, Jerusalem, including Jeremiah. But he spe they're speaking the mind of God. Sometimes that does include talking about the future. But it's not just talking about the future. So I say that to say, if you look in Christian tradition, again, what is prophesying? Authoritatively speaking the mind of God. Um, speaking, sometimes that means speaking the mind of God to power. Speaking the mind of God to those who don't want to hear, like the kings in Jerusalem. Um, so another way we translate the word prophesying, authoritatively speaking the mind of God, another way we translate that word in English is preach. Is preach. So here's four daughters of Philip, of Philip who, who prophesied, preached, talked the mind of God. The Bible has others. In the New Testament, uh, you've got uh, you, you, you've got like we got Chloe's people, Chloe leading the house church in Corinth. In the Old Testament, you got Huldah, you got Miriam, you got Deborah, you got a lot of female prophets in the Old Testament, and some obviously right here in the New Testament. So again, female prophets. What is prophecy? It's not just Jeannie Dixon stuff. It may include some of that, as you're going to see right here. It may include some of that, but it's speaking the mind of God. And usually when they spoke the mind of God, they'd say, this is what God wants out of you. And if you choose to ignore, disobey God, yeah, it will not end well. So it's a byproduct of prophesying that they're that they predicting the future. 
But prophecy in and of itself throughout the Bible, Paul talks about women prophesying. You know, think about 1 Corinthians. He says, you women can prophesy. You women can prophesy in our meetings. Be dressed appropriately. That's what he talks about, the head covering and stuff such as that. He, he tells them to be dressed appropriately and do it orderly. But Paul even talks about women prophesying uh, in Corinth. So... Um, you, you can you can posture this on out, at least for the people who swear they don't see or can't see women preachers in the Bible. I'm not sure they're reading the New Testament closely. I mean, again, the most obvious one is where Paul refers to Junia. And in Greek, that's a feminine name, Junia. Um, it's not Junius, it's Junia. But like where Paul refers to Junia in Romans 16 and calls her a fellow apostle. Anyway, I know some Christians. Um, I was in a conference this past, uh, and it's all over social media. I was in a conference uh, this week, uh, Mere Anglicanism, down in Charleston. It was one of my favorite conferences. Um, one of the speakers was, so I, I forgot this term, one of the speakers is what some people call a shock jock. You know what that is? There are those in the Christian community too. Um, one of the speakers is sort of a shock jock, and um, that's who he is. He's addicted to controversy. I love listening to him. By the way, his name's Calvin Robinson. Uh, you can Google him and see the controversy that I got to watch unfold on Friday and Saturday, on, on, on Thursday and Friday. He was one of the invited speakers. It was fascinating. But yeah, in his, in his presentation to about a thousand of us, he attacked women's ordination. And there's, that room was divided on that issue. Then he attacked Martin Luther. We weren't divided on that issue. And then he attacked Pope Francis, and that irritated some of us a little bit. So what happened, which I don't know that I'd done this, he got uninvited to ever attend again. And I, I stayed through the end because I wanted to hear the panel discussion simply because I wanted him to be on that panel with some of my other theological heroes because they could take him to task. They uninvited him from the panel discussion. If I'd have known that, I'd have come on home. Um, the others were really boring without Calvin Robinson sitting there. But, um, yeah, there's some people in the body of Christ that, that are adamant that women's roles are very prescribed in the New Testament. And there's one passage, not the, 1 Corinthians is not the passage, about women being silent in the church. When Paul says women be silent in the church in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about orderly worship. So yeah, please, don't talk while I'm preaching. I don't care if you're male or female. That's, that's what he means in Corinthians. Now in 1 Timothy, there is the only passage that appears to say that women cannot have a leadership or a preaching role in the church. It does appear to say that. So that's why I hold my views on women's ordination. Well, I hope I hold all my views with some degree of humility. But I hold my views on women's ordination uh, with some degree of humility because there's that one passage in 1 Timothy that's pretty clear about no women preachers, leaders. But what I just tell you principle for biblical interpretation is let the more clear passages of Scripture interpret the less clear. So when I run across this and Junia and Chloe and Chloe leading Corinthian the church at Corinth, and I've seen the, I see the first preacher of the resurrection being female. Remember that. And then I see the passage in 1 Timothy. I have to plead a little ignorance, but I, I can't allow that one passage to overrule all the clearer passages because I might be misinterpreting that one passage. So when you're doing biblical interpretation, always allow the more clear passages to help you interpret the less clear. Don't find what has happened sometimes historically, people find the less clear passages and they'll build a whole theology on it and then they'll create create their own denomination over it. Yeah, I say and Her question is, and, and again, particularly the group that I was with, um, large group I was with um, on um, um, Thursday and Friday, they're across the board regarding women's ordination. Now, Calvin Robinson was 
He had a strong position one way, but and he knew he was in a room full of people that on a regular basis argue over women's organization. So he, that's why I think he loved dropping that bomb in the middle of that room. Because uh, there is disagreement. There are some parts of the church will say women can preach, but it's not to men. Women can preach to other women. Women can preach, just not in the pulpit. I, again, I, I, I try to be humble about that. I don't see that. Like in 1 Corinthians, when Paul's talking about women prophesying, you know, doing it discreetly, doing it dressed modestly, doing it not looking like a Corinthian whore, prostitute, that's a mixed audience, obviously. And he's letting, he's, te- he's giving the women rules for how they speak, how they prophesy to, 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 to the to mixed audience. So I don't know that I can look at the New Testament and say, well, Paul, what Paul really meant was women can speak and then hear all these other conditions. If you come up with the other conditions, I think you need to hold the deal with some humility. Because again, that's not clear in the New Testament. It almost is clear the other direction. Uh, what we do know happened in Christian history is first couple hundred years, women had an amazing role in Christianity. Perpetua. Go home today and Google Perpetua. Um, there, one of the early Christian documents was um, uh, 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 the Acts of, of Thecla and Paul. And, and Thecla was a female, by the way. The Acts of Thecla and Paul and Perpetua's in there. She's an early Christian martyr. Just go introduce yourself to Thecla. Go introduce yourself. The oldest painting we have of Paul on the hilltop above Ephesus, he's in the picture with Thecla, who's... You know, we don't know anything else about. We don't know from the Bible. We just know from other literature. But if you read the other literature of the first couple hundred years, because they're used to Philip the Evangelist with his four virgin daughters being prophesied, who prophesied, women were very prevalent. Now, what is a fact in Christian history? After Christianity kind of overwhelmed the Roman world by the fourth century, and we started acting like the Romans. And what, what we did real quick, and I'm saying we here, this is not the royal we, this is the personal we. What we men did in the fourth century, we reigned you women in. And we know that historically. We reigned you women in, and some parts of the church reigned women more than other parts of the church reigned women in. And it was only 200 years ago when Quakers and Methodists and then came the holiness, then came the charismatics, then came the Pentecostals. You know, we started saying the Bible may not be adamantly in one direction regarding women, women, women's role in the ministry. Even in the Methodist Church, we've had women preachers since John Wesley. Now, we only allowed them to become full elders, presbyters in the church in 1955. So most of us, uh, the first woman ordained in the United States was 1848, not 20 years ago, not in the height of feminism. We, uh, women's ordination predates feminism. But um, most denominations that were even, you know, that used women for teaching, exhorting, preaching, proclaiming, or whatever, um, we still found ways to kind of say, well, let you do it, but... Yeah, even, even when in our tradition, we've had women preachers since Wesley because of the Bible. We've had women preachers, exhorters, evangelists during, during um, you know, for the last couple hundred years. Uh, we didn't give them full clergy rights until 1955. And they didn't really start going to seminaries right before I went in the early 80s. I mean, I still had, I, had, I, I, know, I know personally the first women ordained in this conference. I mean, in 1955, even though the door was open, most women were not brave enough to walk through the door. And it was really in the early 70s when it started happening. All of that to simply say, you can be a little humble with your opinions on women's ordination. Um, Here are the four daughters of Philip the Evangelist. Now, Paul would have a, where Paul Paul does have a concern is, I, I would say, to these four women evangelists, Philip, they're Gentile, they're living at Caesarea Philippi. I would tell those four female prophets, if you go to Jerusalem, doing your ministry there may not help our cause. 
because of Orthodox Judaism. So Paul did, Paul would sometimes, Paul would say, like when Paul tells slaves how to behave, he's not endorsing slavery. That's pretty clear in Philemon. But he doesn't attack slavery either. Paul's main job here is to, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. So he would tell whoever, slave, woman, don't hurt the cause. So, but in Caesarea, among the Gentiles, that's one thing. If they went to Jerusalem among the Orthodox Jews preaching Jesus, Paul might say, I love you, four daughters of Philip. Send in the men for this one because it may be detrimental to our cause. So you do hear Paul saying that stuff. Paul was smart enough to be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. And that's why sometimes he, he tells slaves how to behave and then he converts slaves and they become equal brothers and sisters to the Christians. You know, if he had, if he had just said, let's abolish slavery in the first century, well, you might never heard of Jesus Christ. Rome would have come down on us a hard. We might have never got out of Jerusalem. So Paul does some of that. Paul, Paul's first priority is not social engineering. And that's important for a lot of reasons today. Paul's first cause is not social engineering, creating a society like he wants it. Um, so he had opinions. I, don't think, I think he was opposed to slavery. But his first primary purpose was to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's why you see in the Gospels, or in, in Paul's letters, um, some ambiguity. And that's why, you know, if, if you went to Paul and said, can women preach? He'd probably say, sure. And then if you said, where can they preach? Paul might have some opinions on that one too. So when you just, without humility, say, you know the mind of Paul in the early church on women, just hold that, hold that with some humility. Even in Judaism, there were women who were presidents of synagogues. That meant that they taught and they led. We know that because sometimes in script, we found inscriptions of women being presidents of synagogues. You know one named Lydia, right? You've met Lydia in Philippi. So just, I'm amazed at how... Yeah, I disagreed with the speaker that has created a storm on social media because he was adamant. He, he basically said men should be clergy, women should be mothers, period. And he was coming from a position that where, where if you, the people who go after or go, against, yeah, go after women's ordination in any form or fashion, they say that God was incarnate in a male body. And therefore... Pastors, priests, presbyters represent that. We represent Jesus. We preside at the table like Jesus did. And that's why in some traditions, it's not that, you know, I, I, used, to, I used to be stupid enough with some of my friends, like in the Roman Catholic tradition who, who did not allow female clergy. You know, I used to be stupid enough to say, when they were going, you know, saying why they don't do female clergy. And I would say something like, well, all of the 12 apostles are Jewish, there's no Gentiles among the 12 apostles. Can there be Gentile clergy? Well, the argument doesn't have anything to do with the other apostles. Their argument is the person presiding at the table is presiding as a vicar. You've heard that word. As a vicar of Christ. Can a female preside as a vicar of Christ? And the, the person who stood in front of us in the conference Thursday and Friday. That was his position. He actually is a member, if you, if you see the, the new stuff, he actually is a member of what's called the Old Catholic Church. That's a Catholic church that was created a few years ago. They got mad at the Pope and the Vatican over the 1870 um, a bull about some theology concerning Mary. So the Old Catholic Church, when I said this guy said he was more Catholic than the Pope, he did. The old Catholics don't, that, that little small group called Old Catholic Church, they don't pay any attention to the Pope or the Vatican because back in, 18, in 1870, the Pope wasn't Catholic enough for them. That was the speaker because they all find him entertaining. And that's why I was, I, I wanted him in the panel. I wanted to hear him talk some more. You know, I didn't, I disagreed with some of the things he said. So, I, you know, 
the part of the part of the firestorm is the 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 name of the conference is mere Anglicanism, but the the theme of the conference. I get this. You're smart enough. You know, some of us clergy may not be, but you're smart enough to get the irony. They, you know, they banished him from ever speaking again. They banished him from even being on the panel discussion. The, the theme of the conference was speaking the truth in love. <laughs> so yeah, it's been terrible publicity. Yeah, we, we want you to speak the truth in love, but it didn't take much for us to banish him and tell. Because even he, I thought he had left, but he wasn't in the panel discussion. But he was sitting there. And of course, he, he's one of these people who've gotten famous in the last three years, basically over social media. So yeah, before we got out of Charleston, he was all over social media. That's why he really believes it. He's part of the old Catholic Church that has something to do. It was founded. As, yeah, he really, really, really believes it. But you know, my thing is, we all know that. We know he's, most of the Anglicans down there said, yeah, he's our strange, bizarre uncle that we invite, but we still invite him to Christmas dinner. So I wouldn't have disinvited him, you know. Well, even the, even the person who was presiding came out afterwards, because he was probably, he came out afterwards and told this little story about how he was a direct descendant of Martin Luther and how he liked Martin Luther. And because you, you, you can look at, with the Protestant Reformation, that's when we all thought, well, no. After the Protestant Reformation, where we all became priesthood of all believers, we all could read the Bible for ourselves, you can logically make the case that's where Western selfishness and Western individualism came from. You know, we kind of empowered the individual in the Protestant Reformation. And he, that's how he went after Luther. And again, most of us should have heard that argument before. I still can make a strong defense for Martin Luther. You know, if you decide it's only you and God and you know better than every Christian in the world, believe me, Martin Luther wouldn't support that. Um, but he did sort of free the individual, you know, you know, I cannot deny my conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. But he did end up saying my, my conscience is captive to the word of God. So Luther sort of empowered the individual conscience, but he didn't empower the individual conscience you do stupid theological things. Notice he said at the end, my conscience is captive by the whole, by the word to the word of God. So um, yeah, when he attacked Luther, so that was the only response he got back from the EMC was, yeah, I was I actually was more shocked he attacked Luther and this midst of Protestants than I was. I knew what his view was on. We all knew what his view was on women's ordination. Uh, I had not heard it in a really long time. Uh, but anyway, so. I get a little bothered by the extremes when it comes to women's ordination because they seem to know more than the Bible does. Because, yeah, there is that passage in 1 Timothy, but there's all these other passages too. You've got to do something with the whole book, uh, which is why there's an issue over women's ordination. It's not clear-cut in the New Testament or Old Testament. Um, if it were clear-cut, there would be no issues today, right, in the Christian community. Uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. We should not disagree over that one because that's clear cut in the New Testament. Anyway, so I've introduced you to Philip the Evangelist and his four prophesying daughters. And again, it's, that's why it's important to know the whole counsel of God, to read the whole book. We can wrap up real fast. I need to get you out of here. Um, so he's staying there. Um, in the second, you'll find out why he's staying with Philip the Evangelist in Caesarea. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus, you met Agabus back in chapter 11 when he prophesied, remember, the famine that was going to come and devastate much of the world, probably Jerusalem. Here he is again, because we're back in the Holy Land. Um, while we were staying there for many days, another prophet, this one's male, named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Um, this is called a prophetic action. You see these all over the Old Testament. Some of them are strange in the Old Testament, like Isaiah walking around naked for three years because he was prophesying destruction and whatever, to the city of Jerusalem. So sometimes prophets would do prophetic actions, like, you know, 
children's sermons, teaching lesson, object lesson. So Agabus took Paul's girdle or belt and bound himself, Agabus, with it and said, the one who wears this belt, owns this belt, is going to be bound by the Jews when he goes to Jerusalem. Well, Paul probably said, duh, I know that. Because um, people are already saying to Paul, Paul, don't go. It's not going to end well. So, you know, here's, so of course, when the people hear Agabus, verse 12, when we heard this, we, who's, who's the we? Who's in there? Luke, the author. And when we heard this, and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. That's the way we human beings do it. God calls you to a hard, uncomfortable, road less traveled. It's so easy to just say, okay, thank you, Holy Spirit, for that piece of information. We'll choose not to do it. Out of love, we do that for people. So again, the people are around Paul, urging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, and Luke loves to show you the courage and bravery of Paul. We should be more courageous. We should be braver. Um, so then, then Paul answered, verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Another way of saying that is, what are you doing trying to um, prevent me from doing this? You're slinging tears to keep me from doing what God's called me to do. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Courage needs to be a greater part of the body of Christ. Yeah, there's some things, there's some hills not worth dying on. There are some hills worth dying on. You know, most people in this culture don't think there's any hill worth dying on. Except maybe their family, maybe their kids. But just let the courage of Paul sink in. For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That means for everything that Jesus stands for, for everything that Jesus is, for everything that Jesus does. That's why when you talk about the name of Jesus, the person of Jesus, he's, he's, he's not quite happy about it. That would be called sadistic or masochistic or something. He's not happy about it, but he knows what lies ahead of him, and he's courageous. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we, there's Luke's in the crowd, we ceased. Yeah, you look, with Paul, you learn pretty quickly. You can't argue him out of his positions, usually. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, okay, let the will of the Lord be done. So again, that's why we know what the Holy Spirit's saying here. Let the more clear passages interpret the less clear. Let the will of the Lord be done. So wrapping up, verse 15, after these days we got ready and went, as always, up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. One of the reasons they lodged with Manasseh of Cyprus, same reason they lodged with Philip the evangelist, they are Gentiles. And who does Paul have traveling with him? Gentiles. Yeah. So that's why these people, they're lodging with who they're lodging with. So you're in Jerusalem. We're going to leave him there at the house of Manasson, a, a, a convert from the Isle of Cyprus. It gets really interesting. All of it is really interesting. But it gets really interesting in the rest of chapter 21. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that we will submit to your word. May we not go above or beyond your word, but may we submit to the clear word of Scripture, your Holy Spirit in our lives. Help us to always live in humility so that we live Christ-like. Help us to always be bold when you call us to be bold. Help us always to speak when you call us to speak. And God, always help us keep our mouth shut when you're calling us to keep our mouth shut. And God, we need the work of your Spirit in our lives. We need the mind of Christ to prevail in our lives. And that's why we need to know your word. So thank you for this opportunity around your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.